All right. Uh, we are walking through uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, there's this section called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' first long extended discourse. And there's several of these um, discourses in the Gospel of Matthew that we'll walk through. And this is the first really long kind of sermon that Jesus gives. And it's called Sermon on the Mount because it's given on uh, well, a hillside. They would call it a mountain. If it was here, it would be a hillside. All right. Um, but they, uh, Jesus is giving these teachings. And, and part of this is uh, there's six um, ant- antitheses uh, where Jesus says, you've heard it was like this, uh, but now it's going to be like this. Or it used to be this over here, now it's going to be this over here. And Jesus isn't correcting the Old Testament law. He's correcting interpretations of the Old Testament law. Uh, because the law, which is like, you can find that basically in the first five books of the Old Testament, has these rules, a few hundred rules that the Jewish people would live by. And it gave them a lot of joy to live by these rules because then they would know they were in right relationship with God. But as soon as we have rules, uh, rules create um, the opportunity for loopholes or getting out of things. If you have a, a relationship that's based on rules, uh, then you're not looking uh, to be in, in love with the other person or the other party. Uh, you're looking to take advantage of the relationship as much as you can. All right. This is why most of us aren't close friends uh, with the bank that owns our mortgage. Right? That's not a, a relationship that you have where you love the other person. Uh, you're trying to get as much out of a business transaction as you can, all right? This is also why, generally, uh, when your kids borrow $10, you don't charge them interest, right? Because you have a relationship. Uh, If that's your parenting style, I'm not judging. Um, Everyone who laughed is, but... But if you, if you, uh, uh, those kind of business transactions are the opposite of relational transactions. And if God wants to have relationship with us, then we view those laws in a different way. A way of, of God showing us this is the best way to live, not this is how to get by and not get in trouble. All right. So when Jesus is speaking these new understandings, uh, we're not seeing them as uh, a new law which is a really comfortable thing. Jesus isn't saying, here's the old law, now here's the new law. He's saying, you understood the old law in a wrong way, and you need to understand it in a new way that's relational and loving. Then we also don't believe that this is designed for someday. All right? And and when we read this text today, you're going to, some of you will think this is very pie in the sky. And there's some like theologians that don't believe that this is actually true, that, that someday this will be true. But, um, but right now it's not. It's just like uh, Jesus is setting a standard that's impossible to uh, follow. But if you read the whole of the scripture, that's not what we find. We don't find that Jesus is setting up, uh, setting us all up for failure. We find that Jesus is putting up a high standard, then his Holy Spirit's working in us to meet that high standard. So, uh, we're going to read this, and uh, this gets me, um, uh, this section's good, uh, because I believe some strong things about it that other people disagree with me. So, this is going to be verse 43 of chapter 5, if you have a Bible. Um, it'll be on the screen, if you don't, or if you look on your app, you can read it there as well. So, um, here we go. Jesus is talking, and he says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his Son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, 
what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. You see how that impossible standard there? Now, uh, we'll get to that in a second, but let's start at the beginning. Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. Now, the Bible says nowhere you should hate your enemies. All right? In the Psalms, there's some places where people sing worship songs and they say, God, I hate everyone you hate. Right? Uh, and and that would, we don't sing those songs here. If you write one, we'll consider it. Um, but uh, uh, it has to have a good tune, I think, and then we'll sing it. But, uh, and, and this is a hard thing because a lot of people want God to be this loving teddy bear character. Right? Like, God loves us and he would never hate anyone. But God says straight out. I hate evil. I hate people who do evil. I hate unrepentant evil people. All right? And God is God and he's more dynamic than us. And so he can hold a love where he sacrifices his son for the people he hates. All right? Um, so God can, like God can say, Esau or Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. He can say that. All right? And still be God. Okay? And so you can hate. It is okay to hate. All right? Uh, it is okay to have enemies. Uh, that is a, a that is. We're not trying to get rid of that as a reality. Okay, there are some things that people do that should cause you to feel an extreme negative reaction. All right, um, we're talking about like extremely evil people in our world or in the world's history. People who have participated in genocide or elimination of cultures and those kinds of things through violence. Uh, if you feel hate towards those people. So does God, alright? And you can read the Psalms where, where we feel uh, hatred towards that, yet God still loves them, and that's where we're getting into. So, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor is Leviticus 19.18, alright? And you know that that brings up the question, if we're following rules, well, what does love mean? And who is my neighbor? Uh, that's a question they ask Jesus, Right? Like, is my neighbor the people on my block who are nice to me? Is it that man who never waves back at me? Is it the man who jumps on his riding lawnmower and mocks me every time I'm pushing my push lawnmower? Right? <laughs> I don't know if he's my neighbor. <laughs> so, um, but when, so when, I wouldn't put him in enemy category, more of a, a mocking category, but, um, but there is uh, this, uh, you see how right away, if we're looking at this as a law, we can start to try to find loopholes. And people are trying to find loopholes, even in Jesus' day, to try to be right with God and yet live in a way that was self-serving or live in a way that they w could enjoy themselves and, and, uh, and not enjoy themselves in God. And so Jesus says, you've heard it said this, you shall love your neighbor. And apparently there was an oral tradition out there that said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, and the enemy was assumed to be the enemies of the people of God. So this wasn't like a personal enemy. This was an enemy of the people who were outside of the people of God. Because Israel, the Jewish people who Jesus was talking to, they were all Jews there, were the chosen people. God chose them to work through in order to carry out his salvation plan. But if you're the chosen person, it is really, really natural for you to begin to think you might be the favorite person too. Right? Like if you're the one chosen to take something on or to, to enact something at work or at school or in your family, you start to think, 
Well, it must be because they like me more than the others, you know, and really I can see why, <laughs> right? And, and we, we, there's this natural, we fall into that. And the Israelite people had fallen into the same thing. We are God's chosen. Now, the problem is that they didn't understand, even though God said to them rather directly, you are chosen to be the light to the world, which has already come up in the Sermon on the Mount. We've already talked about this. If you can go back and listen on the podcast. The reason that God chooses people is to use those people to share the gospel with people who are outside of the people of God. I would go so far as to say, your salvation is less about you than about God wanting to use you to reach people who are far from God. Does that make sense? So when you start thinking your hot stuff because God has saved you or you've responded to the grace of God, we need to take a step back and say, well, God has saved me because there are people who are far from God that he loves and he's chose to use me to reach those people. It's not because you're something special. And so Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, at this point, you're going to go, well, that's nice, Jesus. You're going to go home this afternoon and continue living the way that you lived before. And you're going to say, that's nice, that stuff Jesus said. It sure would be nice if that was actually possible. Because what Jesus is throwing out here is something that is so far beyond what anyone on earth thinks. What any religion on earth teaches. That the, the distinctive mark of Christianity is that we love our enemies the people who desire to hurt us, we love them. Now, that doesn't mean that we feel like an affectionate... We don't go over to their house and hug them, right? But we love them. We feel love for the people who we hate. Do you hear that? We feel love for the people who bring up an incredible amount of hate and violence in us. We love them. And then we pray for the people who persecute us. And persecute means people who wish to do us harm. Alright? So the people who wish to do us harm, we actually pray for them. This gets rather mm, dicey. Because we have, you know, the invention of Facebook, which is the best way to settle an argument. Put something on Facebook. And someone will put on Facebook, Wow, I hate those people. Mm, the terrorists. Right? And yet, as Christians, we're holding these conflicting feelings of we hate what's going on. We hate the act of terrorism just like anyone does. Uh, anyone uh, on the side of good and order. Right? Anyone not, uh, it's an evil thing. But the Christians take this step back and say, all right, so what do we do with this? And Jesus commands us to pray for the people who are persecuting us. And we say, yeah, right after we punch them, right? We pray for them on the way down, right? <laughs> no, Jesus doesn't say, beat them down, defeat them, and then pray for them. Jesus says, we pray for the people who persecute us. This is the distinctive mark of Christianity that puts us out there alone as a religion. There are no religions in the world that say the people who are persecuting you are the people that our God calls us to love and pray for. 
I mean, at what point in your life group or in your small group or when you get together with your family and you say, hey, does anybody, you know, have anybody who's persecuting them that we can pray for? Right? Or when you take prayer requests at the thing you're at, when's the last time someone said, well, you know, there's these terrorists and I'd really like to pray for them. And even if someone does, there's this awkward moment, right? Where you're like, wow, they have no social norms. Like, they do not know it's not appropriate to pray for the people we hate. Because really, it's not appropriate to live according to what Jesus teaches. Do you see that? Because we can get into this culture of this um, nationalistic Christianity where we take Christianity and use it for our own means. Where we use Christianity in a way that serves us instead of seeing that God saved us to serve Him. And when Jesus calls us to these things that we think are impossible, Jesus is saying, you'll actually have a really difficult time following me if you do not love your enemies and pray for the people who persecute you. You will have other flaws in your faith if you don't live this way. It's, uh, I want you to know, like, um, this is the last one. And all summer long, I knew that I was going to have to pray for the people I hate. I can tell you their name before I preach this, or else I would have no integrity. And so I prayed for them this week, and dang, it sucked. Like, for real. And I prayed things, and I was like, God, I don't think I feel this. And I'm pretty honest with God, and maybe you're not, but um, uh, I, I think He knows that when you're lying. Um, <laughs> but there is this, there is, there are people... Like if we talked about, hey, if someone, there's someone, there's someone for every single one of you, if they walked in this room, everything changes, right? Everything changes. They walked in and sat next to you, you'd all of a sudden have to go to the bathroom, right? And you wouldn't come back. <laughs> because we all have those people, these people who seems their life goal is to make our life suck. And I can't preach this to you with any integrity if I don't live this better than I preach it, all right? And so I prayed for these people and dang it sucked. Like really, it's not, it wasn't the highlight of my week. Alright? I did go swimming in a pool on a hot day. So it was right below that. Uh, but, but it's not, like we're not saying, hey, you want to have a good time, pray for the people who hate you the most. Right? But if, if you want to be the person that Jesus wants you to be, then praying for the people who persecute you is the way to be that, not the way to be that, it, that is the person that Jesus wants you to be. So here's why he says this. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And this is a key moment in comparing it to verse 48 that we're going to get to. They would use the word sons. If you're a son of someone, then you are the same as that person. All right? So they would, there's a couple of disciples of Jesus, they called them the sons of thunder. All right? And you can imagine what their character was like. Okay? Um, or if, if there was a person, if you're a teacher and there's a person in your classroom who's rather chaotic, you would say, you're the son of chaos. All right? Uh, and and that's, that's how they would describe people. All right? If there's a really good student, you'd say, you're the son of me. Right? And you are the good student. Um, when we're the son of the Father, then we reflect what the Father does. A son of God, if we're all sons and daughters of God, a son and daughter of God is someone, not someone who says, I sing the song or I said a prayer. 
It's someone who has the character and the life that reflects who God is. So if you want to be known as the sons of the Father, the Father loves those who hate Him. The Father reaches out to those who persecute Him. This is Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross looks down at the guys who just beat the tar out of him and drove nails through his hands and says, God, it'd be great if you forgave them because they don't even know what they're doing here. You and I, we don't do that. That's the significant difference between you and Jesus, all right? You go, man, I hate those people. And I know, God, you told me to pray for them, so I'm going to. But God, listen, it doesn't feel real. That's me. That's you. And yet Jesus displays this. And if you want to say, I am a Christian, I carry the name of Jesus, this is what you do. Uh, so listen to this. Because for, this is verse 45. For he makes his son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now imagine for a second you're listening to this and you're a Jewish person so you know you're the favorite of God. And this new teacher comes and says you should love the people who are enemies of the people of God because God allows sunlight to shine on both of them. And God allows rain to go on the just and the unjust. And your whole world is shaking because everything you know is God likes me more. And Jesus comes along and says you should love those people because God likes them just as much as he likes you. That person who hates you, that person whose name came to your mind as soon as I said, if someone walked in the room and everything changes because you feel uncomfortable, because you can't stand to be around them because they want to hurt you, God adores them with the same passion that he adores you. God watches them with the same caring heart that he watches you. That's, not, that's just not fair. Because I'm the favorite. I sit through this service every week, God. <laughs> right? I've read the whole Bible and parts of it are boring. They go fishing. Right? They watch football on Sunday. How on earth do they receive the same love? And as soon as you start saying, it's not fair, God, it's kind of a funny argument. Because you're looking at the God of the universe and you're saying, it's not fair, God. The God who can say, hey, that next breath, nope. And you're looking at him and saying, it's just not fair. And what you're really doing, what you're really doing, if you look at God and say, it's not fair, what you're really doing is saying, God, you're not who you say you are. You're not all-powerful because you're not acting in the best interest of me. Or in a way that is favorable towards me. And so the, what you've done is switched. Where God now becomes servant and you become king of the universe. If you say to God, it's not fair. What you're actually saying. And I know you and I have both said this. When you're in a desperate moment or you're in a depressed moment. And you say, it's not fair. What you're actually saying is, I should be in charge. And you omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing God, you should listen to me, the created being, because I've been to college. <laughs> right? 
God, it's not fair because I've done this and I've done this. And if we're able to take a step back and look at it, I mean, what you're saying is I don't believe in a very large God at all. The God I know is rather small and rather petty and it's the God I want. Here, let's get offensive, okay? What I'm saying is you don't believe in the God of the Bible. You might be serving someone you call God and someone you call Jesus, but it's not the same one that the Bible describes. You're doing this other religion. And it might look a lot the same, and it might feel a lot the same, but it's hard to call yourself a Christian if you don't believe in God. And I don't mean the God you created, right? You believe in the God you created. But do you believe in the God of the Bible? And as soon as you start deciding that you should be in charge and God shouldn't, and I understand in desperation you'll say those things. I'm saying if you don't repent from that, if you don't come to your senses and let the Holy Spirit convict you of your stupidity, then what you're saying is, I don't believe in what the God that the Bible teaches. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe this passage right here. I don't believe that God loves those people because they are really, really bad. Jesus continues like this, as if that wasn't harsh enough. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. You need to know tax collectors were Jewish people who were collecting taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire. So they're traitors, okay? Plus, the way that they made their money was taxes were kind of paid on a commission basis. Alright? So it's kind of like if you went to your local IRS office and said, how much are my taxes? And they said, well, it's 1100 this year. And you said, well, the chart says 1000 And you're like, well, talk to the chart. Who cares? It's 1100 this year. And when they'd turn in a thousand and they'd make a hundred dollars. That's how tax collectors made extra money. So not only were they traders, they were also extorting money from the Jewish people. And God says, so if you only love those who love you, you're as good as the traders who extort you. Because even the tax collectors would love their friends and love their families. So if you hang out here at church and you love your clique, your, your group, and you don't want to reach out to those other people who are different from you, you're as good as a traitor extorter in our church. You're great. You're great. You're on a leadership track, right? Like you're a future pastor. Um, that's sarcasm, okay? You're not. You're an evil, non-Christian person. So, well, you may be Christian. You're an unrepentant person. Um, do not even tax collectors. And it says this, if you only greet, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same. Gentiles is the word that they use for people who are outside of Israel. The non-favored people. And even the Gentiles greeted each other. So if you treat the people in your church different than the people out of your church, you're just as good as pagan, heathen people. Just as good. You can see how this sermon's ending on a harsh note, right? And then Jesus puts this down. Therefore, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, there's a couple different approaches to this, right? Uh, the first is to say, well, nobody's perfect, right? You know that. You're not perfect. Your spouse is, but you're not, right? Uh, and you say, 
So and this is something like we're going to be perfect someday, right? Or we change it and, and we say, and I've done this uh, back when I was a terrible person, uh, that perfect, if you look at the Greek word, and this is how preachers get around things. Uh, if you look at the Greek word, it actually refers to like being whole or being complete. It's the word teleos, all right? And it actually is like a completeness or a wholeness. So you need to be whole just as God is whole, all right? Or we can take this approach and read the dang verse and start doing it, right? I said dang. Okay, we're going to cut out. I'm trying not to curse because I'm going to get excited. Uh, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly... I don't curse, so you know. If you're visiting, I'm not a curser. Um, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what I think that means. God is perfect. You therefore be perfect. So when you're in a church and somebody says, nobody's perfect, you say, get behind me, Satan. All right? Because that's not true at all. Because God is perfect. So you, therefore, be perfect. The question that I think we need to ask is, what is perfect? Right? Because it doesn't mean I don't sin. Because the Bible also says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says that. And so it doesn't mean that you don't sin. And when Jesus puts this on the end of this, he puts this on the end of the six, you've heard it said, but I say. All right? And at the end of this one specifically, Jesus puts it there in a way that says, here's what love is. And God is perfect in love, so you be perfect. God loves all completely and fully. The sun will shine on you if you're the worst human being on this earth. The rain will fall on your crops if you're the worst human being on earth. That person that could walk in the room and it changes everything for you, God loves them with every last bit of his heart. That doesn't mean God doesn't feel pain towards those people. All right? That doesn't mean God w like, would really desire for those people to stop attacking him and hurting themselves and hurting the people around them. All right? This isn't a wishy-washy kind of God wants to give everyone a cosmic hug. All right? But God loves these people just as much as he loves. Not more, not less. He loves all. Our church is part of a denomination. It's called the Evangelical Church of North America because the longer names were taken. And... Uh, we're from a, a family of churches. Um, if, if churches have families theologically, we're with uh, like uh, Methodist churches, Nazarene churches, if you've heard of those kind of churches, right? Um, and our churches all kind of trickle down from a guy named John Wesley, all right? And John Wesley was a preacher. He wrote on a, he was a terrible husband, but a good preacher. And uh, so he wasn't perfect. Um, but he said uh, to, in his theology was this, that Perfection, like Christian perfection, is loving people wholly. And that as a Christian, if you want to grow, if you want to be mature, you love people. And we can get caught into different traps where we want to be, I want to mature as a Christian, so I'm going to join a life group and do a Bible study and watch a sermon online every day of the week. And Jesus says, and this is our theology, at our church and our family of churches 
that we believe Christian maturity is loving people. And so the very most mature Christian in our church may not be the person who knows the most about what the Bible teaches, may not be the person who attends the most. It's the person who loves completely. And as we grow in love, that is what Christian maturity looks like. I want to read to you this. Uh, this is my version of the message. And the message is a Bible written by one pastor. So it's a paraphrase where he was trying to explain this, the Bible to his congregation. And he, he translated one book and then he translated and now he has the whole Bible. Uh, this is how this verse 48 sounds in the message. It says this. In a word, what, <laughs> and he uses italics. In a word, what I am saying is, in italics, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lived towards you. The message of Jesus is you are a son or a daughter of God. You are. Like if you, uh, maybe not all of us are, People who are Christians, people who have put their full faith and trust in God are called sons and daughters of God. And if you're here today and you haven't done that, then this message doesn't really actually apply to you. Alright, you can hear and listen to what we believe for Christians. Christians are known as sons and daughters of God. The way to become a son and daughter of God is to repent of your sin, to recognize it, to recognize that your sin separates you from God. And you ask God to forgive it. You ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. And, and then Jesus, the, the Bible says, God adopts you into his family. Alright? So if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you can become a follower of Jesus today. Like now. And then this applies to you. We'll talk about that in, in a second. Because I want to pray with, if that's what you're feeling, we're going to pray together and I'll lead you through that. Alright? But if you're a Christian here already today, because Jesus is talking to people who already knew God in this context... He's saying, you're a son and daughter of God, so start acting like it. You have everything that you need to do what God wants you to do. So start acting like it. Live like the person that you are. This is something I do with my son all the time. And, and I might be too intense of a parent, uh, but I know where our family's from. Uh, and I'm into history and so I know where like our last name came from and stuff like that and I can tell my son this is who we are and this is the people you came from and so act like it don't act like your friends alright don't act like the world around you and as Christians we look at this and say you are a son and a daughter of God you are like your dad is the guy who made everything. <laughs> is the most powerful... Uh, is, uh, like calling him a being, or calling him powerful, uh, cuts him short. Any words you use to describe God are incomplete in describing him. And he loves with an unimaginable, full love. And you are his kid. And so you get to live like that. You get to live in a way that loves everyone.
we're going to pray together. And, and this is the kind of thing that I really... You can take this and you can go and say, yeah, that was nice, all right? Uh, and I want to encourage you not to just walk out and say, that was nice. But I want you to start thinking about that person that I mentioned. It doesn't mean I don't want you to call them. I don't want you to go and hug them. The Bible says you need to pray for them. And it doesn't mean you need to pray for them and then you'll like them. No, they might still be hurtful people. But I want you to call, I want to call you to pray for them. Maybe not even for their sake, but for your own sake that you understand that God loves them just as much as he loves you. Because when you start to pray for them, you'll start to understand who God actually is and start believing in the God of the Bible instead of the God that makes you feel good and comfortable. <laughs>